Bible and open it to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians, chapter 1. If you um, didn't bring a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to use one that's in the pew. And you'll find it on page 983. Maybe a little bit helpful to turn directly there. Colossians chapter 1. What aspirations do you have for your life? What are your ambitions? At some point in their young lives, all children are undoubtedly asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? And of course, the answer when they're asked that question depends upon their stage of childhood, and maybe even more so their particular fascination at the time, right? So a preschooler might want to be a firefighter or a ballerina. An elementary age student may want to be an astronaut or an athlete. An adolescent might want to be a physician or a writer. But even in adulthood, we don't lose those aspirations, do we? You may still be asking yourself the question, What do I want to be when I grow up, right? You may still, at this stage in your life, at this point, you may still aspire to some job or to some career. Maybe it's, maybe you're in your field, but you want to promote up to a certain level or to have a a certain set of responsibilities. There's some goal that you want to accomplish, some task, some mission that you aspire to. But aspirations are not necessarily vocational either. You may have ambitions to travel to certain places or to live a certain lifestyle or to acquire a a certain level of financial luxury. But regardless of what those aspirations may be, they are deeply personal. We are very passionate about those aspirations. And oftentimes it's that passion that fuels us to see that they are accomplished or we work towards them. They, they guide the direction and trajectory of our life. So aspirations are great motivators because we think that there is some joy or some contentment to be found when we reach that level or reach that stage. As Christians, what are our aspirations? How does Christ shape our ambitions? We know from the Scripture that the new birth changes everything about our lives. So we might expect that when we come to Christ that our ambitions might change as well. So what would those new ambitions be? What would our Christian aspirations be? Well, I think we get a glimpse into what those Christian ambitions should be as we look at Paul's prayer for the Colossians at the very opening of his letter. As he gives thanks to God in verses, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, he lauds some key traits and key attributes that marked the followers of Jesus there in Colossae. He continues on with a prayer, a supplication in verses 9 through 14, asking God to help them live in a distinctly Christian way. So as we read and study this text over the next couple of weeks, I, I hope that the, the, the ambitions, the aspirations, of the Colossian believers will cause us to also aspire to their ambitions, that the things that defined who they were would be be an ambition or an aspiration for also us to cling, to gain, 
to be and to live. Let's look at the passage, Colossians chapter 1, and I want to read from verses 3 down to verse 14. This is Paul writing, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, when Paul wrote his letters, he didn't just randomly write them, right? In fact, how many of you remember, especially if you're my age, I don't know if they teach us anymore, but going through grammar in elementary school, grammar or English class, and doing a whole unit on how to write letters, right? There was a, a certain standard, a certain form that you use to write letters. You put, your, you put your address and date up over here, and you put the address of the person you're writing to here, and you write a salutation, dear so-and-so, and you compose the body of the letter, and then you close it out a certain way. Well, Paul, they had a, a standard form in, in, in the Greco-Roman world, in Paul's day and time. And Paul is adopting that standard form as he writes this letter. Now, a Greco-Roman letter had four parts to it. It had a salutation. We can kind of glean some examples here from Paul. So verses 1 and 2 are the salutation in which he acknowledges who the sender is. He's sending the letter to them. He writes out who the recipients are, and he also offers a, a, a greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's the, that's the first section. The second section is a short wish or prayer, usually for health or prosperity or favorable life circumstances. A really good example of this is 3 John, verse 2. kind of gives us a, a glimpse. Of, uh, not, it's not a secular letter, but it gives us a glimpse of what a secular letter looked like. Very short, very brief, a prayer for health. We can see here that Paul kind of takes that short, brief prayer and expands it. Okay? And we're going to spend our time looking at that today. The third section is really verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 15 to chapter 4, verse 6. It's the body of the letter in which Paul addresses his main concerns for writing. And then at the end of the letter, chapter 4, verses 7 through 18, we have the, conclusions, uh, the conclusion offering the final greetings and a farewell. So as Paul, so we come to the second section here, Paul isn't just writing a short prayer or writing this prayer just to, to pray for the Colossians. He is using, he is adapting the standard form of the time and in a way Christianizing it. His prayer is directed to the one true God, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is, he is praying for them, not just a, for a prayer for their health or a prayer for their financial prosperity or a prayer for favorable life circumstances, but he is praying for some very specific things that are happening in the life of that church. So Paul is adapting the standard form to, to provide, to give a passionate, heartfelt prayer for the church of Colossae. And the prayer reveals, I think, to us more intimately the nature of his relationship with this church 
even though he didn't know them. We see what he felt about them. We see what he believed about them. We see what he, he knew about them. But it also sets the tone then for the rest of the, of the letter. Now, this prayer is such a lengthy prayer, even for Paul's standards. You look at the other uh, letters that he writes in the New Testament. This prayer we could, we could break up into two parts, if you will. The first part, verses 3 through 8, being a thanksgiving. We see that very immediately in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then in verses 9 through 14, we have more of a, a prayer proper, a supplication, where he is making certain requests for the church. We're going to consider the thanksgiving section today. And, and this is interesting about Paul. I mean, Paul just really packs his prayers, just full of stuff. My intention was to go through the entire prayer this week and to move on, but, I mean, I, I just can't do it. It's almost an impossible task. And that's not boding very well for how I'm going to deal with the book of Colossians. I mean, I had everything regimented, and already in the first week, it's kind of blown up my, my plan for the, for the whole book. Paul just packs so much here in verses 3 through 8 that I don't want to go beyond it. So I want to give our attention to verses 3 through 8 today, and then we'll come back and look at chapter, in verses 9 through 14 next week. And as we look at this, lesson, at, this, at this text, I want us to see not only what Paul says about the church, but I want us to also think through about what we can glean from this letter. How, how, does, how does what Paul says about the Colossians true about us? And how it should be part of our holy aspiration in living for Christ. But I also want to think through the letter in terms of, of Paul and, 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 and how could we imitate Paul here in praying for other believers. So let's think through this Thanksgiving section. We have mentioned last week, and I believe I already mentioned once, that Paul did not know the Colossians personally. He mentions that in chapter 2, verse 1. From what we can tell both from the book of Acts and just from inference, knowing Paul's habits and patterns of life, Paul never traveled through Colossae. If he had, he most certainly would have stopped to preach the gospel. He would most certainly have made converts there. God was blessing his ministry in every place he went. And he would most certainly have started a church from the converts that he made. Instead, as we see in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, it was Epaphras who had probably been converted and discipled under, during Paul's ministry in Ephesus, who went back to his hometown of Colossae, who preached the gospel there, who made converts to those who responded positively to the gospel, and then who established the church. He mentioned that again in verse 7. Uh, you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ, on your behalf. So he was the, the pastor of that church. He was, he was establishing the church. He was discipling the people. He was continuing to, to shepherd them in the ways of the Lord. But when false teaching began to emerge there at the church in Colossae, Epaphras journeyed to Rome where Paul is in prison. He, he gives Paul a report of the, about the situation there and he seeks his counsel. And in response then, Paul begins to pray for the Colossians. And we assume that by the word always in verse 3, that he continued to make praying for them a habit. He continued to pray for them faithfully, praying, thanking God for the things that were already happening there, the good things, but praying that they would also continue to walk in the right direction as they sought to walk with the Lord. So as he is considering here Epaphras' report, but again, he didn't know the church, he only learns about the church from Epaphras as he's considering the church, as he's thinking about their situation. He was compelled not just to jump in with a prayer, not just to jump in with instruction, but to pause and to thank God for them, to highlight the things that, 
God was doing among them, the good work that God was stirring up in them and how God was at work and how he was using that church to accomplish his purposes. So as we think about this Thanksgiving, I guess the first question, we're going to ask a series of questions this morning. The first question to ask is then, why did Paul give thanks to God for the Colossians? Why would Paul give thanks to God for the Colossians? We see in verse 4 the reason. He says that he, well, verse 3, he, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So Paul is thanking God for the faith and the love that he sees among the Colossians. Now, faith and love, along with hope, are considered to be foundational virtues of the Christian life. You can think of a verse like 1 Corinthians 13, 13, for instance, right? And there remain faith, hope, and love, right? The greatest of these is love. That we see those three, those three virtues, those three attributes, kind of weaving a thread throughout the entire New Testament. Those are essential virtues for the Christian life. In fact, it's impossible to be a Christian without faith and love. But even more, the faith and the love of the Colossians were exemplary. They were edifying. And so Paul stops and gives thanks to God for them. Now, let's think about faith and love here. Let's think first about faith. Paul gives thanks to God for the faith of the Colossians. Now, Christian faith, I think it's important to understand here that Christian faith has two important elements to it. The first element is trust or a sense of dependency or a reliance upon. So first and foremost, faith is trust in some object. Now, this morning when you came into the church, I see that you all sat yourself down in the pew, right? Why did you do that? Well, because you believe that the pew would hold you up while you sat. And none of you really thought about this. It's already been ingrained in it. You've done this before. You look at the pews and they see that they're sturdy. But the evidence that you really trust the pew is that you sat down in it. You had confidence that it would hold you up. And so you trusted the pew... And when it was time to sit down, you sat yourself down in the pew, expecting that it wouldn't just crash and that you would fall on the floor and bump your head or something. Well, so also, Christian faith is a faith that trusts in an object. And the object that Paul here uh, notes, the object of their faith in verse 4 is Jesus Christ, your faith in Christ Jesus. So Christian faith is a faith that trusts in Christ. The Colossians were trusting in Christ. They were relying upon Christ. They were depending upon Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, for salvation from God's wrath, for reconciliation with God, for eternal life. They weren't trusting in anything else for salvation. They weren't trusting in the Jewish laws or customs. They weren't trusting in Greek philosophy. They weren't trusting in pagan rituals. They weren't trusting in magical incantations. They weren't trusting in any political or spiritual power. They weren't trusting in their own works. They weren't trusting in anyone else. They were only trusting in Christ. And that is what God calls all of us to do as Christians, to trust solely in Christ alone for salvation. The only way that we can be saved, right? Sola fide. By faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're worshiping with us this morning and you are not a Christian, then this is where you must begin. Everything else about the Christian life 
is going to be irrelevant because you cannot enter into a relationship with God and you cannot stand before God on the day of judgment unless you are standing in Christ. Now, as we unfold this text this morning, you're going to hear more about Christ and what He has done for you. And you will need to respond to what you hear about Him. You can either continue to live life your way, to follow after your dreams and aspirations and to trust in yourself and how you will direct your life, or you can trust in Christ. And you can enter into a new relationship with God through Him. And so I appeal to you this morning, even now, as you'll hear more about this as we go on, I appeal to you to trust in Christ, to do what so many of us have done and are already doing and are continuing to do, and that is to trust in Christ alone. So the first element of faith is trust, trusting specifically in Christ. The second element of Christian faith is faithfulness. Now, while we are saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. In other words, genuine Christian faith has an enduring quality to it. Faith is not simply an emotional response to some truth claim. It's not something that I decide today and not decide tomorrow. It is something that is enduring. It is something that, is, that will continue. It is a reorientation of our life that is reflected in everything that we do. When we trust in Christ, we think differently. We speak differently. We talk differently. We go to, to different places. We change the trajectory of, of those things that we love and we give ourselves over to. Everything about our lives changes because of Christ. So true faithfulness is expressed in enduring faithfulness. Faithfulness reveals the genuineness of one's faith. And Paul had already identified the faithfulness of the Colossian believers in verse 2 when he identifies them as faithful brothers in Christ. So for Paul, faithfulness reflects genuine faith in Christ. We know that our faith is living and breathing and acting when we are faithful to Him. So Paul gave thanks to the Colossians for their faith. He also gives thanks to the Colossians or to God uh, for the, the love of the Colossians. And again, it's important to remember that love in the Bible is not primarily an emotion. Our culture today teaches us that love is an emotion that comes and goes. I can love this thing today, but, if I, but tomorrow I might not love it at all. I can, I can love and have a certain feeling towards this person or towards this object, but tomorrow I might not so much, and I'll act differently tomorrow than I do today. Well, in a biblical sense, while emotion can be there, it, love is more than simply an emotion. Love is a commitment to the truth that is demonstrated in action. So we look to the example of Jesus for love, right? Jesus, when the Bible talks about the love of Jesus, it doesn't tell us that he just had this beating heart, this emotional quality. Oh, I just love those people so much, right? How do we know the love of Christ? It was demonstrated in an action. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So Jesus demonstrated love in selflessness and sacrifice. He demonstrated a commitment to those he loved by his actions that were for their best interest. So though Paul does not here mention specifically what kinds of things that the Colossians were doing to demonstrate their love, 
His commendation suggests that Epaphras reported very concrete ways they were showing love. Perhaps it was they were assembling together. They were praying for one another. They were encouraging one another. They were ministering to one another. They were caring for the orphans and the widows. All the things the Bible talks about in terms of how we display our love, they were probably involved in doing those things. They were tangible, concrete things they were doing that Paul could have pointed to and said, this is how we see your love for God. This is how love is at work in you. Now again, just like faith, it's important to note that the Colossians' love had an object. It says that he had heard of their love that they have for all the saints. So saints here are the, the objects of their love. When they did works of love, when they showed love, the love was directly towards other people in the congregation amongst that church. Saints, as we saw last week in chapter 1, verse 2, the elite Christians, they're really all Christians. We're all holy ones because of the blood of Christ that makes us holy. And Paul, too, himself may have been touched by certain things. Verse 8, it's hard to know if he's simply referring to the report or, or were there certain things that the Colossians had done for him personally that caused him to see their love in a very real and practical way in his own life. Love is a testifying mark among God's people. John 13, verse 5, Jesus tells us by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if what? If you have love for one another, for the saints. 1 John 3, 14, John writes, we know that we have passed from death to life. We've moved from the realm of death and we've now come into the light, to the realm of life, the, the, the realm of salvation. How? Because we love the brothers. So a mark of true Christianity, a mark of true conversion is the fact that we will not just simply love, but that we will love the brethren. We will love God's people. So as Paul here prays for the Colossians, he first begins by thanking God for their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. And these two things, faith and love, are essential marks of the Christian life. But as he continues, we see that faith and love are not natural to human character. It is not natural for us as human beings to have faith in God. It is not natural for us as human beings to love other people. So what was the basis for the faith and the love of the Colossians? Well, we see that in verse 5. He says, we've, you know, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. We've heard of the love you have for all the saints. Where do those come from? Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So the Colossian believers had faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. So let me think about hope for a minute and just the, the nature of hope or the quality of hope. From a human perspective, hope is a wish or a desire, but there's no certainty of fulfillment, right? So I can hope that this afternoon it will be sunny and warm. But I, seeing that I have no control over the weather and seeing that it is the middle of January and seeing that we can look at any weather forecast, the chance of my hope coming to reality is very small, right? It's not, it's not going to happen. So my hope may or may not happen. There may be a change in the weather, but I can't predict that it will happen. I don't know if it will happen. Biblical hope is not 
wishy-washy. There's not any sense of uncertainty to it. Biblical hope is a confident expectation in the reality of the thing hoped for. So unlike human hope or worldly hope, biblical hope is characterized by certainty. It's characterized by confidence. It's characterized by this sense of guarantee. It's going to happen. It will be fulfilled. So for the Colossians, something that is laid up in heaven for them is something that they are confident of. It is a certainty. And it is being worked out in their lives in the present time to produce faith and love. All right? So we think about hope, it's certain, confidence, guarantee. Well, what exactly is that hope then? What's the, that's the quality of it. What's the substance of it? What is that hope that is producing faith and love in them? Well, I think Paul answers his own question in chapter 1, verse 27. Let's read that. He writes, To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, it would take me 15 minutes to just unfold verse 27, so just have to trust me with this. Study it for yourself, and we'll address it when we get there. But in verse 27, Paul is talking about God's plan to make the gospel known to the Gentiles. And he says there that the spectacular feature, the prize, the treasure of the gospel is Christ in you. That's the hope of glory, right? You read, read the end of that sentence. The hope of glory is the reality that Christ is in you, that Christ dwells in you. In fact, we can translate that phrase, hope of glory, the Greek. Another way to translate it would be the glorious hope. We can, when we think about God's glory, glory is often associated with, with God and with His domain. So we might also, as a synonym, say that this glorious hope is a heavenly hope. Or, in Paul's words of verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, the hope laid up in heaven. So the hope that breeds faith and love in believers is the reality that Christ now dwells in you. If we read a little bit further in that section in, verse one, in chapter 1, verse 27, we would see that at one time this was an impossibility in the era of the Old Testament. But now, because Christ has come and through His work, a new reality exists that is true for every believer. And again, it is not some wish. We don't have to wish or hope or, or desire that Christ would be in us, but there's no sense of certainty. There's no sense of confidence about it. We're not sure if it's fulfilled or not. No, this hope is a fact. It is a certainty. It is a reality. Christ is in us. Christ dwells in us. Christ abides in us. That's our hope. If Christ is in me, and I am in Christ, then we are united together as one eternally. And because it is a heavenly reality or a glorious reality, it can never be taken away or corrupted. Think about what Jesus said. I got excited when I, when I remembered this verse. Because it uses the same phraseology that Paul uses in this in Colossians. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, 
and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So what does this passage tell? What does Jesus tell us about things that are laid up in heaven? They can't be stolen. They can't be corrupted. They can't be lost. They're permanent. They're secure. There's a confident expectation that they will be there. There's a certainty that what is stored up in heaven will be kept there intact, retaining all of its value until the final day. And so also is our union with Christ. Yes, we taste the first fruits now of that union right now in the present in this age. But our hope and our expectation is that it won't be taken away. It won't be corrupted from now until then, but that it will last. It will remain and we will enjoy it forever precisely because it cannot be corrupted or taken away from us. That is our hope that what we have, what we experience here and now in Christ will last tomorrow and the next day and this month and the rest of this year and the rest of my life and into eternity, it cannot ever be taken away. That is awesome. What an awesome hope we have. Our hope then is Christ in us. And it is Christ in us that produces the faith and the love that Paul commends here in this passage. This also means that apart from Christ, we are faithless and unloving. Apart from our hope in Him, we lived once trusting in ourselves, in our will, in our wisdom, rather than trusting in the will and wisdom of God. We loved our own lives, acting out of selfishness, without regard for other people. But when we became united with Christ, our orientation changed. We now trust Him for life and godliness. We sought to follow His will and wisdom walking in His ways rather than following the delights of our heart. We begin to love with His love, following the pattern of His love. So see, we have faith and love in our lives because of Christ's presence in us. So it's our hope, it's our union with Christ that supplies us with the faith and the love that is commendable to God and that is encouraging to the saints. Alright? So, Paul thanks God for the faith and the love of the Colossians. Where does that faith and love come from? It comes from that hope, the reality of Christ in us. And what is the source of that hope? So here's the last question. What is the source of that hope? Well, verses 5-7 through seven tells us how it is that Christ came to dwell in us. It is through the Gospel. Look at verse 5. Sort of the second sentence there. He says, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the Gospel. The word this really goes back to verse 5. That this is referring to this hope laid up for you in heaven. The hope, the reason why we have hope is because of the Gospel. The Gospel has made the hope of Christ in you a reality. We come to know Christ and dwell in Him and He in us through the Gospel that He has enacted that has now been proclaimed to us. And Paul gives us kind of a, a history of the dissemination of the Gospel. It has gone into the whole world. It's bearing fruit and growing. And it had also come to the Colossians. The Gospel was preached. They responded. They became united to Christ in the preaching of the Gospel as they believed it. And that, that union with Christ then produced faith and love which Paul commends here. What was true 
for the Colossians is true for us. So how does the gospel bring us into union with Christ? This is what will be unfolded in the rest of chapters 1 and 2. Paul, there's a few places where there's some brief summary snippets I think are important to look at. Paul describes and explains the gospel in several ways with several illustrations. I want to look at a couple of them. First, in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we read it earlier. But he, he closes this prayer with a summary of the gospel. He, has, he says in verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, still in chapter 1, go to verse 21. He says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. And then flip over to chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So there's a few things that we see in these gospel summaries, three elements to these gospel summaries. The first is the fact that in all of them we see our sinfulness and the separation from God that ensues from our sinfulness. So, we lived in the domain of darkness under the sway of Satan and the evil powers, chapter 1, verse 13. We were alienated from God, hostile in our minds toward God, doing evil deeds against God, chapter 1, verse 21. We were dead in our trespasses and sins and in the uncircumcision of our heart, chapter 2, verse 13. So we see our sinfulness and our separation from God. Secondly, we see the work of Christ. He was nailed to a cross, chapter 2, verse 14. And he died shedding his blood on our behalf. Chapter 1, verses 20 and 22. He was raised from the dead to conquer the power of sin and death and Satan. Chapter 1, verse 18 and chapter 2, verse 15. So we see our sinfulness. We see what Christ has done, his death and resurrection. And thirdly, we see his work of redemption applied to us. So how does the death and resurrection of Jesus actually do something here? Well, we see in verse Chapter 2, verse 14, that he canceled the record of sin debt that was against us. He forgave us all our sin, chapter 1, verse 14. He broke the powers that held us in bondage, chapter 2, verse 15. He made us alive, chapter 2, verse 13. He reconciled us to God, chapter 1, verse 22. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, where we now live by faith, chapter 1, verse 13. And he has presented us to himself holy and blameless and above reproach. Chapter 1, verse 22. This is the gospel. That God took dead and sinful people. He sent his son into the world to die and be raised again from the dead to take care of that sin problem and to draw these people to him. And now that work is accomplished to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel. The gospel proclaims what Christ has done on our behalf to unite us to Himself. See, God, Christ couldn't just enter in. There had to be something to be done to make that relationship possible. It's His work on, on the cross. It's His work through His resurrection that makes our hope a reality. That's why our hope is sure and certain. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus took care of the problem. 
It did it. He accomplished it once and for all, the book of Hebrews. He was raised again from death. If death couldn't hold him the first time, how could it ever hold him ever again? So we have a sure and certain hope through the gospel. Now, let's think about this for our lives. Let's make some connections and to draw some applications for us. Again, I want to think about this from two perspectives. So if I'm using the PowerPoint up there, yes. I've, I've labeled them application number one because it was too big to put at the Colossians, the part of the, the letter that, that they're reading, how it applies to us, and then also sort of Paul's end of it, Paul's perspective here. So I want to think first about this from the Colossians' perspective. Pretend that we're reading this as the Colossians are also reading this. And that as Paul is writing, he is writing to us. Again, we see that Paul commended the Colossians for their faith and love, and he gave thanks to God for these marks in them. So from Paul's thanksgiving, we can discern that faith and love are necessary and laudable attributes in every believer. We should be known for our faith in Christ Jesus and for the love that we have for all the saints. So, do we see this kind of faith and love borne out in our own lives? Are the full measure of faith and love our holy aspirations? Do we aspire to have this kind of faith? Do we make it our aim to have this kind of love? Think about your faith. Are you trusting in Christ? Are you depending upon Him alone for salvation? Are you submitting yourself to Him by faith in obedience to His will. What about your love? Do you love the saints? Do you love all the saints? might want to underline the word all. There are some black sheep and crazy uncles in the body of Christ. There just are. But God calls us to love all the saints. Now, that's what we aspire to. You want to go another step further? Do you want an honest evaluation of your own faith in life? Here's something risky you can try. Ask someone else. Ask someone else if they would say that faith and love are the two best things that they know about you. And see where you are. Evaluate yourself. Ask for evidence. How can you see faith and love at work in my life? If that's what we aspire to, right? You go to school, you take a test. Why do teachers give you a test? It's to evaluate you, right? To see if you know the stuff that they taught. If, that, if faith and love are our holy ambition, we need some evaluation. So maybe this week, take the risk. Ask some people you know in the body of Christ and ask them to give you an evaluation of your faith and your love. We're exhorted to practice faith and love, and so we should aspire toward greater faith and love in our lives. And we should labor to see these works produced in us. So faith and love must be holy aspirations for us. Secondly, we see that Paul acknowledged that the source of the Colossians' faith and love was their hope laid up in heaven. Again, the reality that Christ was in them. So faith and love and every other distinguishing mark of the Christian is a work of God. God does that work 
in us. It must derive from our relationship with Christ. So cultivating a relationship with Christ must be primary for life. So again, evaluation. How would you evaluate your walk with Christ right now in the present time? Is that relationship central for you? Or is it peripheral? Are you progressing in Christ? Are you seeing fruit of a relationship with Christ being borne out in you? Or have you stalled out? Has that relationship become stagnant? Are you simply going through the motions? Have you, maybe even unaware or unintentionally, kind of jettisoned that relationship more important, right? I don't have time for, because this is the thing i got to give myself to. I'm just, I'm just being honest with you folks. I just, I'm asking myself these questions too. I've been doing it for a while. Because I find myself stacking up my schedule and saying these things are so important and sometimes it's crowding out the better things, the more important things. We need to maybe honestly evaluate our schedules, honestly evaluate our time, honestly evaluate our commitments because this, this is it. For all eternity, this is it. This is what we've been created for. And we're saying it, it's not important to us. So we need to evaluate ourselves. We need to evaluate our relationship with Christ. That Christ would be the more important thing. So take God's word. Evaluate your life. Again, ask other brothers and sisters in Christ to speak into your life. Sit down and talk with a pastor and elder. So what, what is clear, though, is that our lives will not be marked by faith or love or any other Christian virtue unless we're walking with Christ. John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So a healthy, vibrant, consistent relationship with Christ must be a holy aspiration for us. Now, if you're struggling in this area, if, those, the, if, the, if the flame of Christ has waned into some just mere ember, how do we fan that back into flame? Well, what Paul says in verse 5 and 6, what's the source of hope? Well, it's the gospel. Paul reminded the, the Colossian Christians that the gospel was the source for the reality of their union with Christ. So their relationship with Christ came through hearing understanding and believing the gospel message. So if you're struggling in your walk with Christ, go back to the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Hear the gospel preached to you. Remind yourself of the glories of the gospel. Consider the glorious person of Christ. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. Consider what Christ has done for you. Consider the glorious benefits of the gospel. Consider the promises that God has made to us in the gospel. Maybe you just need to, to meditate a little bit on some of these gospel summaries we read a moment ago in chapters 1 and 2. Maybe you need to work your way through the first half of Romans or Galatians or sit down with one of the gospels, like the Gospel of John, and read about Christ and the glorious, the glorious man, God-man that He is and what He's done for us. Maybe you need to read, I've got a picture up here of the the cover page, maybe you read a book like this. What is the gospel? I'm reading it right now. Just a real short 120-page book and just work through it really slowly and remember what the gospel is so that it fans into flame this relationship with Christ. The gospel is the fountain of life. So if the rushing, vibrant waters of life are not flowing in you, then go back and drink from the fountain of the gospel. We should all aspire to know and to love the gospel.
So that's what we receive as if Paul is writing to us. Let's think about this now from Paul's perspective. Let's think about this. Remember, Paul's an apostle, so we always can't make that one-to-one correspondence. But he was first and foremost a Christian. I think there are some things here that we can see that would make a, a direct application to our own lives. Again, as part of his prayer for the Colossians, Paul thanks God for the work that God is doing among them. So when we are observing God at work in the lives of fellow believers, we too should offer thanks to God. God is worthy of praise. There's many things we can praise him for, but definitely one of the things you can praise God for is what God is doing in the life of somebody else. When you are encouraged by someone's faith, when you're encouraged by someone's love in the body, take time in your prayer time to thank God for that. God, thank you for putting that person in my life. Thank you for letting them be an example of what faith and love is. It is evidence that you're at work in their lives, and I rejoice in that, and I praise you for that. We should aspire to be thankful people. Now, giving thanks to God for brothers and sisters will lead to two corollary things. First, giving thanks to God for his work among the body will lead us to pray that God will continue that work. You don't want to thank God and then just God stop, right? God, thank you for the faith and love of Joe. So encouraging to me. And then like tomorrow, Joe's faith and love just drop off. No, we don't want that at all, do we? We want God to continue to work in that person's life. We want to see, we want to see God still pouring faith and love in Joe's life so it's not just a, a one thing moment in time, but it's an ongoing thing. So we can be praying that God would continue His good work in them, that He would continue to show them grace, that He would continue to, to bring them into the fullness of that relationship with Christ, that they would continue to draw deep from the wells of the Gospel so that faith and love are increasing and overflowing. So here's what I want you to do this week. I have printed out extra copies of the church membership list. If you don't have one, grab one. If you've forgotten where yours is, grab one. There's plenty. They're in the table. They're in the foyer. They're almost everywhere. Grab a directory, and this week I want you to pray for every member of this church and pray specifically. Maybe God will bring to mind some work of faith or love. You can, you can thank God for that. But then pray that God would work faith and love in them. Wouldn't it be great if we were all full of faith and love? Pray that. If you don't pray for anybody else, pray for me. I need it. But how great that would be if the, if the entire body is praying that for everyone. So grab a membership directory on your way out and make sure this week to pray. Every, you can break it up. You don't have to pray for everybody every day. Just break it up. And at least once this week, pray for every member of this church that God would produce faith and love in them. The second corollary is that giving thanks to God for the faith and love in others should lead us to encourage others about their faith and love. I would imagine that, I mean, Paul's praying, but he's writing this out. I'm sure it's very encouraging when the Colossians receive this. Do you think that they, and not in a private, prideful way, but that they get, they get this letter from Paul, and Paul's like, man, your faith and love are exemplary, it's great, it's awesome. Wouldn't that be fueled as to keep going? Let's keep walking in faith. Let's keep walking in love. How many times have we doubted our own faith or our own love or our own relationship with Christ or even our usefulness for the kingdom. Well, one way that we can be encouraged is to encourage one another about the faith and love that is evident in the lives of your brothers and sisters. So as you're praying through the directory this week and thanking God for the faith and the love of the saints here and you're praying that God would continue that work, 
Not, you don't have to do it for everybody. Maybe just one or two. God prompts you. Just write them a note of thanks. I just want to encourage you. Your faith and your love just are meaningful to me. And don't just say that. Just write some specific ways. Right? Write something specific that this, your aspect of faith in this issue, knowing that this is what you went through, was a great encouragement to me. And how that would fuel faith and, and love in the body of Christ as we're encouraging one another. So, my prayer for us is Paul's prayer for us. May we aspire to see our lives built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we aspire to be walking in a vibrant relationship with Christ who dwells in us. May we aspire to see faith and love produced in us to the glory of God. And may we encourage the saints to this end as well. May God make these holy aspirations a reality in our lives and in our church. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we pray that we would be people marked by faith and love. We know that only you can produce these things in us, and we have great confidence that you will, because you have given to us Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory. May that relationship, Lord, be not just primary, but it may be the fuel that causes us not simply to be more faithful and more loving, but Lord, may it be the fuel for us to be more Christ-like in every area of our lives. Help us to go back, Lord, to the source, to drink deeply from the well of the gospel. Thank you for its truth. May it give vibrancy to us. May it cause us, Lord, to come alive. May it cause us, Lord, to be a, a bright light set on a hill, gleaming to all around us of your truth and of your hope of your goodness. God, may we this week grow in our faith and our love. May we pray for one another. May we encourage one another. And may you do the work you've promised to do in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.